Hello, this is Dr. Christine Sauer with another episode of the show Sparkles for Mental Health. And today I'm very excited to have Louise McMillan on the show. Welcome, Louise. Thank you so much for inviting me along to your show. It's a pleasure Just to be here. Welcome. So, Louise, you told me that you are a breast cancer survivor and yeah. uh, have turned your HR career into a career as a coach. Uh, and, and an inspirational, motivational speaker, and even wrote, uh, started to write books. Wow, that's amazing! <laughs> yes. So, yeah, just so one, one chapter in a book so far, but well, that's a start. <laughs> uh, and 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 I really love the stories of how people get into the rut of a deep challenge and then come out the other side a transformed, better, changed person, and maybe a little bit wiser on top of it. <laughs> and I'm sure yes. you know that journey just as well as I do. So tell us about why are you doing what you're doing today? Okay. I, what I'm, what, the reason I'm doing it is I don't want people to lose the number of years that I lost in my life by not believing in myself. Mm. Um, I'm feeling that I had to conform and blend in and not upset anything, you know, not controversially upset, but you know what I mean, just to, to be where everybody wanted me to be. And I don't want people to lose those number of years. So I'm here being really passionate now about supporting people through mental health, through any adverse um, thing they might have to deal with, such as cancer, so that they can be true to themselves all the time. Life is, life is fast, um, it goes by so quickly and we've got to cherish all the time that we have and i love that attitude i really do because it's true and i say this little sparkle that we have in front of us we have the choice to cherish it and use it to our benefit that of others or we can let it just go out and go by and not use Absolutely. it so i love that <laughs> and that's the principle of mindfulness it is so important as you as you know now say how did you start in life and how did your journey not go linear? <laughs> um, so I, um, I I grew up in a local little seaside town, or not so little anymore, uh, in the UK in Somerset. And um, I'm the middle daughter, so there's three girls. And so um, I was always, I suppose, the quiet person. And I obviously studied hard. I um, used to be very instrumental music-wise. Music was my my passion when I was at school um, and also girl guiding um, and those were my kind of hobbies and then as I um, went into college I did business studies and then started a career uh, in the local council. First of all I started in payroll um, and then I moved into accountancy as uh, the treasurer of the council at the time knew my dad um, and back in those days, the early 90s, you kind of got told this is, you know, you, if, if someone says the management team say you're going to move here, that's what you do. You never kind of question it. Whereas nowadays, it's all about consultation and checking that person wants to do that. And then after a few years of doing that, I wanted to um, just just couldn't feel myself going anywhere in accountancy. So I did um, two evening classes for uh, more of a senior, uh, sorry, a higher qualification in business studies. And an opportunity came up for me to move into HR or personnel, as it was called back then, um, with the local council through at the time the they were going for a big change from like um, they went from county council and district councils to what they call a unitary authority. So they were abolishing the county council. So 
the council went from 600 employees to 3,000 employees overnight. Um, so it was a really big change and I was in the recruitment team and I thoroughly enjoyed it, was doing really well. Um, got the opportunity to do my professional qualifications, had a promotion after two years to a HR advisor. And I did that for four years while being uh, getting my qualification, so professionally qualified. And then I got to a stage, by this point, I was coming towards my late 20s, by which point I bought my own house. Um, I had a great um, social life with friends, um, you know, seeing the world as well on holidays. It was it was a really joyous time and I was pushing the boundaries of what uh, in my family would have been termed of what you did in your 20s. You know, previously it was you got married and you had children and I wasn't. I was buying a house by myself, the first one to do so. I was, you know, professionally qualified, first one to do so. So, um, so in my 30s, I decided to leave the council and progress my career elsewhere, which I did. And then I did that for a few years and did a lot more employee relations, which where I found that actually that impacted me quite a bit on my whole well-being and my whole self-esteem with the organisation I'd kind of worked for. And then I moved on to another organisation. So I did a lot of career development, moving, moving around over that um, next, probably about the next 10, 15 years. But what impacted my HR career and also my personal life was my well-being, my mental health, um, my whole self-esteem, my self-confidence, the belief in myself. Um, I never felt that anything I did was good enough. I felt that um, on some things I was faking it and I was going to be um, found out that I wasn't actually... Um, as credible as I as I thought I was, and I and I was credible, and I had great feedback, but I just didn't believe it. But the impact was that um, I would spiral in and out of depression. Uh, my anxiety would rise. Um, I never took time off work, but the impact was that I would come home from work and I go straight to bed, and I go up and I go to work and I come home and I go straight to bed, and that was my pattern. And if friends had arranged to do things at the weekend. Um, I'd cancel because I just didn't felt that I was interesting enough, funny enough, um, uh, in, you know, just basically wanted to be around people, wasn't glamorous enough, didn't have the right clothes, all those kind of things. And in um, my 30s, it really did impact me. And as I saw friends getting married and having their um, life after a couple of relationships where I was cheated on or just didn't have a, a great experience. I just felt that it was all me. And therefore I kind of shied away from the whole romantic relationship. So it did really impact on that, that side of things. And I just then threw myself more and more into my work experience burnout. Um, so yeah, just wasn't in a great, great place overall. And it just continued for years and years. Wow. It sounds like a really typical corporate career. <laughs> You start with all the excitement, good intentions, qualifications, and the stress hits you, and one thing led to the other. And often, as it's more the case for women than for men, we grow up always feeling we are not good enough, and uh, we need to fake it to make career, right? We have to put that fake smile on our face, Absolutely. no matter what. Absolutely. And of course, being Somebody in HR... Oh. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, being in HR, you always have to be 
there, you know, present everything else and, you know, you get battered and verbally battered, I would say, um, by managers and employees for anything that you're trying to do, especially if it's tricky or even if it's just a restructuring that no one's going to lose their jobs. People don't like change. But actually for you in HR, you're not allowed to go through anything. You've got to have that that presence there all the time. Um, and that was quite sometimes quite quite tricky to yeah, to yeah, deal with that. Put up a wall that you're really not. So at work at least you have to always be somebody that you maybe don't feel like being, that you don't in, that doesn't agree with you. It's kind of a dissonance and that creates tension. And tension in your brain is stressful and stress, of course, leads to anxiety, depression. Excellent. Changes yeah. your microbiome as a whole host of physiological changes. It's Absolutely. so fascinating how that works. And then burnout hit. So what happened to you when that went down? You said you had a few failed relationships so never really were able to settle with children and a husband as a traditional women are supposed Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. And of course, then you get the added thing of, um, well, what's wrong with you? Um, why are you not married? Why haven't you got children? Um, you know, and that comes from any new relationship you're trying to have as you get into your 30s of you know what's wrong with you or or even just people you work with you know it's people want to get to know you so they want to know some of your personal life and when you when you say well yeah I'm sort of 40 or whatever and I've not got married and I've not had children it's like well that's strange what's wrong with you and and also you find that your value as a within your amongst your friends is devalued because they talk all about their children and when you try and interject to be part of the conversation it's well what what do you know and it's like I may not have given birth to a child but I'm an auntie you know I'm I I support my sisters bringing up their children you know and I'm I look after my niece and nephews quite regularly but also at the same time I ran a girl guide unit I had 30 girls between 10 and 14 you know come into my guide meetings I built that guide unit up and you know, those those girls sometimes would share things with me. And even now to this day, I'm very privileged that there's five of them um, that keep in contact with me regularly. You know, others from time to time, but I, there's five of them I will hear from every single year regularly about what they're doing and how am I doing and what's going on. And that's just really nice. And so you, I think I, I'm, I'm not a mum, but I do know about young people because they talk to me because they can't talk to their mums or they don't want to talk to their mums. And that's when you bring that in is, a different that is side. very often the case that uh, as parents, and I have children and I had a husband and it wasn't easy. And sometimes I wish I wouldn't uh, mm-hmm. and just had other people's children. It's easier. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, uh, because children, they push your buttons, they stress you yeah. out. They bring you to insanity, border to a broaden, broadening on insanity, and you still have to hold it together. And yes, Absolutely, yeah. I understand mothers that say to others that are not mothers, what did you know? You don't have to go up, get up and stay all night with a screaming baby and then go to work in the morning. Absolutely. It's not that easy. Other people can be very empathetic and nice. And I think it's important for us to understand how when we say things like that, it really stings those it hurts the feeling of people that don't have children and for different reasons and that may be a choice and of course we have enough people on this world really we don't need additional children it's nice to have them but it's not that it's essential for life absolutely absolutely 
And if somebody chooses not to have no children, or they try and can't have it, which is really a desperate situation, and then you hurt their feelings like that, it causes a, an injury. Absolutely. And, and that's how it, how it felt, because I would have loved to have been mum. Absolutely would have, would have loved to have been a mum. It was just the fact that I just didn't think I was worthy. And of course, we didn't talk about mental health like we do now. So I used to think it was just me. I felt that the, the voices in my head that was telling me things and how I felt, it was just it was just me. And therefore, you kind of think, well, is this genetic? Is it not genetic? So if I was to pursue and have a child, I wouldn't want them to have this worry going on in their head like I've had. Now we, we know it's it's not genetic. It's and it's. Um, although there are probably some elements that are genetic but you know it's that whole thing of it, you're not alone that's the bit I'm trying to get you're not alone in this world and there's you know there are support now and, and ways that we can learn of that can help us around that which is different but but back then you know, I, it's such an important message to bring over if you feel that you're not good enough if you suffer emotionally and it's just as bad as breaking your hand or breaking your arm or leg it hurts. It hurts very much. Mm. People wouldn't commit suicide. I tried it twice. I know how it feels. But I can only say when you're in that situation, you feel totally alone. You're the only yeah. one. But it's not true. You are not. Mm. There's many people that feel like that at times. And the good news is there is very good help like this out there. And you're part of this helping hand that is there stretched out to reach out to those that listen, that watch this, that, that are there, that contact us in any way to extend the love and care that we learned to give over the years to ourselves and others to share that. And that's really the mission that many, many good coaches spread. And that's why I love the coaching profession so much. So yes. I, I love that you that you share that. Now, for you, the journey didn't end with the burnout, right? And what happened? No, no. So literally at the end of 2016, I was in a really bad place with my depression and had questioned what was the point of me being here and why am I here? And and actually the question, did I really want to be here? Um, and um, and so I sort of just planned for 2017 to just repair myself, take it step by step. And in the, the June of 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and I I want to share how my cancer was found because I didn't find a lump and there is no history of breast cancer in my family. I had a discharge on my pajama tops from my left breast. Thought that was very strange. Um, and so after a couple of occasions of noticing this, I went to see my, my GP who examined yeah. me and she said, I don't think there's anything untoward, but I refer you to be on the safe side. Had an appointment at the hospital, so our consultant, he examined me, said, I don't think there's anything untoward. However, I refer you for a mammogram and an ultrasound to be on the, on the safe side. Um, had the mammogram and then I had the ultrasound and they said, oh, there's something here on your right. And I queried it because it was my left that I had a concern with. Bless them, they did everything all over again. I went, no, there's something here on your, on your right and took a biopsy. I still didn't think of anything of it. And I was like, oh, okay. And then the following week, I was um, had a phone call to say, could I come into the hospital? They'd had a cancellation was their wording. And so I picked up my mum en route and we went to the hospital 
and that's when they told me that I had breast cancer um, and they believed that it was stage two. And the following week I had a lumpectomy um, and I had some lymph nodes removed. And then it must have been about another three weeks then after that, before I got my results, or two to three weeks. And what they found was that my cancer was a lot bigger than they first thought. They thought it was 25 millimetres. And in fact, as soon as they opened me up, they could see it was bigger. It was 45 millimetres. They removed three lymph nodes and two of them tested positive for, for cancer. Um, and they said my cancer was, was quite aggressive. So I had to go down the chemotherapy therapy route. And as you can imagine, that was a total, total shock. Um, yes, and as somebody that gave those diagnoses out and saw the shocked expression, and also I, I sometimes go with, with friends and neighbours when they are afraid they are getting the big C word, as it's called, yes. <laughs> and accompany them down that road. And I've seen many people that got diagnosed in stage four and got told they have weeks to live, which I think mm. is not right to tell anybody how long they have to live. It's not up to us. We never know as doctors. And, and, and I think it is, it is rewarding to accompany people in that journey. It is extremely hard to be the person that has to go down. So tell me, how did it impact you? What did you feel when they told you you have cancer? Um, absolute shock. Um, my first phrases were, I can't put my mum and dad through this. So straight away, I was worrying about them. Um, my dad had had cancer a few years beforehand. Um, so... Um, yeah, it was very much about, oh, we, you know, we, we were just sort of getting back onto the thing of, you know, dad being well and everything. And it was like, oh, great, you know, a couple of family celebrations that year. And then it was like, oh, gosh. Um, I named my cancer straight away from my walk back from the hospital. My mum doesn't drive, so I had to walk back and then go in. But all I thought about on the way back from the from the hospital was naming it. I, I don't know where this came from. I think it was me just trying to occupy my, my brain. And I named it Stan. Um, and that is good, a man, something that I hope, I hope somebody you didn't like because visualization worked, you know. Abs absolutely. And, and it was a case of, I think I was trying to find a name that wasn't anything in the family as well. Um, and I always said that the ones they found in my lymph nodes was Cyril and Sydney. So I was trying to go for really, really old names that wasn't like in the, in the family. Um, so I apologize to anybody that has that name. It has absolutely. nothing to do with you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's a good idea actually to visualize that as some kind of entity because then your immune system has something concrete to attack. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, I was in a total shock um, and trying to get my head around everything and, you know, having to tell my dad when we got in and then having to tell my sister. And, and then I chose to tell friends by WhatsApp groups. Um, just just a two two group of friends, two groups of friends, because um, I just thought felt that was easy for me. Um, and I think for for a little while, I was kind of just in the bubble. I I went to work the following day. I went on a business trip the following day to, you know, a different part of, of, um, of the UK up north, um, you know, with a colleague who was quite surprised that I was doing it. I just needed to keep a little bit of normality. But of course, my experience up until then, is even when I was in my deepest, darkest depression, I still got up and went to work. So to me, not working would have been kind of a bit like failure. 
so for me it was that just keep going um and obviously I had to take that break when I had the lumpectomy I couldn't do anything for for two weeks I couldn't drive and I couldn't go to work um the bit that when I before the day before I got my results from the lumpectomy um spookily I was at the hairdressers having my hair cut and I was updating my hairdresser I knew known her a little while and all of a sudden I just said to her this is the last time you're going to be cutting my hair and she was like don't don't say that you know be positive and I just had this gut feeling that I was going to have to go down the chemotherapy route and then in the waiting room with my mum I remember saying to her I thought I've got to tell her before we go in and I just took her hand and I said mum we're going to get through this. What, whatever happens next, we're going to get through this. And she was like, well, you've been so positive. You know, where's this coming from? I went, I just know I'm going to have chemotherapy. And she was like, you, you don't know. You don't know this. And of course, so when we went in and they said that I had to go down chemotherapy, I was like, yeah, that's OK. I knew. And it was a lesson for me about trusting my gut instinct. It happened a couple of times before. And this time I really listened to it. So I prepared myself. Um, but what I hadn't prepared myself was for what happened next <laughs> in my journey. So um, uh, the, I had my first chemo a month after my lumpectomy. And a week later, I started getting stomach ache um, and it continued for a few days. And I had a day, a Sunday where I was really, really poorly. But everyone kept saying to me, you've not had chemo before. We don't know the side effects. Also, you don't know your pain threshold because of course I've not given birth, so I wouldn't know my pain threshold. Yeah, exactly. So I carried on for another week and I was driving to work on the Monday and I was driving quite away. It was a good, to drive somewhere in the UK, which is like an hour's journey is quite far for a business, um, for work. And I, I had this gut feeling that I need to stop and I need to go back and I need to see my doctor. So I listened to my gut. And I went back and um, eventually to cut the whole long story short, I was diagnosed with appendicitis. So my appendix had burst. They were now in an abscess, which was stuck to my bowel, bowel and my colon, which meant that I had to go undergo emergency, immediate emergency surgery, uh, which they did. So I was then in um, intensive care for 48 hours. My hair was falling out, I had a blood transfusion. Um, and yeah, so I was in a hospital for, for two weeks and that for me then it was like the universe was telling me you can't keep living as you're living. Um, you're going to keep going. So we're going to give you cancer to really make sure you know that, um, uh, you know, your life is worthy. However, you've not quite it's not quite hit you on the head. So now we're going to give you appendicitis just to give you that final kick up the bum to turn around and say, you can deal with everything, but your life is worth living for. And it was. And one of the lessons I found out was that people liked me. That was a big lesson was people actually did like me. There you go. What else did you learn from that journey that you are, you are now paying forward? Absolutely. So now, yeah, absolutely. It's this, it's the whole thing about looking after others, making sure they're not living, they're not on their own. Um, and supporting them whatever they want to do and not having the the nitpicking the derogatory remarks it's about learning how to how to manage them and the fact that actually you just ignore them yeah that that is that is a wonderful place so it, it reminds me of a story you probably know the book by Gabo Mate when the body says no 
which is yeah. exactly what happens to many people. They go their life, they don't think about anything, career and everything. And suddenly something happens. For me, it was a very bad back pain that put me out of commission for, in the hospital and learning to walk again. That started my wow. spiral. So cancer is a similar downhill spiral where the body says, no, you can't do what you're doing anymore. There's something really wrong with your life. And it's yeah. kind of the reset button, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's painful, but it's a it's a very hard reset button. Like when you restart your phone and uh, start over and reset the whole software, and sometimes yeah. the hardware, right? And so you did that, and many people have done it. And in in history, that is actually an instrument I feel that life puts on it to grow as people. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, and many people have written about the growth through pain, and it's true. And sometimes when there's no pain at all, now there's no growth. Absolutely, yeah. Pain, so, them. so what are you doing now? And uh, uh, I know you work as a coach and a speaker. Uh, what is your favorite thing to do? And if somebody wants to work with you or hire you or reach you, what's the best way for them to get there? Yeah. So, so as I as I work as a as a coach on an individual basis, it's all about helping them live life more fully on their terms, embracing their uniqueness, um, you know, establishing those boundaries, knowing what energizes them and what nourishes them. And that's not just about the food we eat, but that's about how we spend our time and who we spend our time with. Um, you know, it's um, you know, if you have someone that's happy like me to go and walk for the park and chat to the squirrels then great, you know, because that's fine. And we don't shout about it, those things, you know, it's it's knowing what it is that brings you enjoyment. And if other people don't understand, that's okay. They may not be your tribe. So it's finding who are your tribe. And that's not getting rid of your friends. That's going, my friends are important to me because I have that history and that experience with them. And they've always been there and they will still continue to be me. But that I need to also find these other people in my, who can help me engage in my life and nourish me and help me, take me out of my comfort zone and experience new things like I've done, like walking up Snowdon, one of the highest mountains in the UK, um, you know, and it's it's that kind of thing. And I want to be someone's cheerleader. And that's what I kind of call it. I'm behind the scenes. I'm there cheerleading them to do anything that it is that they want to do that they may feel they're not supported. Um, so, and, and also by being a speaker is sharing my story so that people can share your story to give people the hope the faith and the love that change is possible and there's life after disaster absolutely absolutely and it's that whole thing of as one friend said to me once you've made you've made cancer less scary um but as another friend said to me when i always thought your talks about your cancer he said but when i heard it a second time i realized it's actually about mental health and how cancer saved you so it's that thing of what else is out there that can save someone that isn't so um, harsh on, you know, cancer is a really hard thing to go through, but perhaps it's that thing of what can they change in order to help them so they don't have to go through something that's um, that could potentially be quite life-changing as, as, as cancer or major emergency surgery for something else. Um, and it's just inspiring people to get mental health out in the open um, and talking about it and understanding where people come from um, and it's, it's, it's hard because you know I've been on a journey and some people around me haven't been on that so when I talk sometimes I need to balance how I come across for them to understand from a different way and if they don't understand it it's not a reflection of me it's just the fact we just live two different lives um, which is okay. 
And I often even go a step further and said, mental health is nice, it's a buzzword, but really what people for millennia have talked about, what is equal in my books with mental health is love. Absolutely. And, and, and really without love, mental health is just a word. Absolutely, yeah. And, and there have been books written about love. Of course, the Bible is one of them and other spiritual texts. And I think it is what human, what makes us uniquely human and differentiate us from chat GPT, for example. Yes. They can talk about love and all kinds of things, but they cannot love. They don't Absolutely. have that energy that, that we can feel exuding from you when you just listen to what you're saying, when you're sharing your journey. This is true humanity, and this is why uh, artificial intelligence computers will never be a competition for humanity, for love, for what yeah. is essential for humans. And I think that's an important message that we all need to get. Don't let that take away from you. And I love how you said how getting cancer really saved your life. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of a contradiction, but I really like that idea of uh, thinking about it that way around the corner, because it's true. It, it makes your it enriched your life in the end because you learned what you grew as a person and you became the wonderful person that you obviously are today. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, if somebody wants to book you for speaking engagement or wants to work with you, where can they find you? So they can um, find me on my, my website, um, which is www.louisemacmillan.co.uk. Um, I will spell my surname um, because it's a very unusual spelling of Macmillan, which is M-C-M-I-L-A-N. Best way to remember it is if, you, if you're a football fan and you think of the football team AC Milan, just change the A to an M and that's how you spell it. My dad liked that one. He was, he's a retired football referee. Um, yeah, they can find me on uh, LinkedIn. I'm also on Instagram. I do have uh, a page on Facebook, but I will admit I'm not um, active much on Facebook. Um, it's one of my boundaries. I'm not a lover of Facebook. So whilst I'm there, I'm not as active as I am on Instagram. And obviously, more importantly, I'm on LinkedIn um, actively on there. Now that's wonderful, Louise, and I make sure to share your website link under your video so everybody that sees your beautiful picture also sees your website. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you very much for sharing your story and sharing the hope and the good message and being so authentic about what really happened to you and how it affected you. And thank you. in the end, how you became the person you are today, which is a wonderful thing. And uh, this is the end of this episode of Sparkles for Mental Health. And your eyes sparkle, my eyes sparkle, <laughs> the watchers or listeners, I sparkle soon if they're not sparkling yet <laughs> and make sure to subscribe to this show so you don't miss future episode uh, thank you very much for listening bye bye